0: And we're all hardwired for compassion, and we're hardwired for altruism. And when, when our own fear and our own shame gets in the way, we're not able to access that. And so if, if we can give people the skills to take better care of themselves physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and, and have more sense of self-agency uh, and confidence in how they can navigate you know, their own body, heart, and mind and get in touch with something deeper, then they can access their very natural capacities for compassion and
1: altruism. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I could just see it in his face. Even through the glare of my monitor and the distortion that comes with the video conferencing software, I could just see the pain and torture of the present. So I asked my client, how are you? And I watched his eyes dart from side to side, almost like they were trying to run from the question or to avoid the true answer to it. He took a breath and he responded, "Mm, I'm okay. It's been a rough few weeks and I've been feeling a lot of stress and emotion for the first time in a while, but you know what? It's okay, we're in a good spot and we'll push through and we can just figure it out. Hold on, I interrupted him. Do you see what you just did there? It was like the truth was starting to come out and you quickly pushed it back down. Like it was too hot to touch, too risky to even name how you are in the moment. As if it's so important for someone, whether it be you or your team or for anyone, to just see that there is a positive way forward and not to look at what's here. He took a breath. I asked him again, how are you? I'm scared. His words landed with a thud that only comes with the truth. I'm really scared this isn't going to work. And I've wasted years of my life. I see this all the time with clients. I see it all the time with myself. When I'm stressed or in a hard moment, I'm constantly searching for, yearning for the path out. If I can just get the plan, if I can just get the right idea or the right tip, if I can just stay positive, then I can move forward and get out of the pain out of the muck. But the interesting thing is to deny myself of the moment to deny the full moment, it's actually denying myself an opportunity to move forward. So what does it mean to accept the full moment? It's to feel the pain and the discomfort, the fear and the doubt, whatever might be arising to not run from it, but to feel it. How am I really feeling right now? My client might say, this is scary. I'm anxious that I won't be able to resolve this. I am afraid I'm gonna let those around me down. I am scared I made a bad decision to start this company. Whatever it might be, you need to first name what it is. You need to first name where you are. And to avoid that would be like trying to plot a drive to New York City without first seeing that you are in Cleveland. How could you possibly know the route to take if you don't know where you're starting from? How could you possibly take action if you haven't even taken responsibility for how you feel. Fleet Mall is a fascinating and inspirational man. He's currently working as an author, consultant, trainer, and executive coach, who has been enormously helpful in supporting others in transformational change. And he does that by helping them first take responsibility for where they are, for how they are and compassionately embracing who they are so they can start to move towards who they may choose to become. His story to finding this work is fascinating and a moving one, and it actually starts with a bit of prison time. I am sure you'll enjoy this conversation between Fleet Mall and Jerry Colonna. Being the founder or CEO of a startup is hard. It can be lonely with long hours and constant demands, with a to-do list that may feel like it's never ending and really unforgiving. And there's no manual to help you clear a path through. If you're looking for an opportunity to change how you experience leadership, join Team Reboot at our CEO Founder Bootcamp this March in Boulder, Colorado. Together with your cohort, you'll establish greater awareness of your personal leadership habits so you can reboot and refresh what it means to be a CEO or founder of your organization. You'll create a customized strategy for being the leader you want to be, all while building a network of peers that you can rely on. To learn more about the 2020 CEO Founder Bootcamp, and to submit your application, head to reboot.io slash bootcamps.
2: Good morning, Fleet. It's a delight to see Fleet. you. Good Hi. to see you. Um, welcome to the show. And um, before we get started, could you take a moment and just introduce yourself to our audience? <laughs> okay.
0: Let's see what I should say. Okay. Well, my name is Fleet Mall, and uh I live in Hatfield, Massachusetts, in the Pioneer Valley of Western Massachusetts with my partner Sophie. I recently brought out a book, Radical Responsibility, which I think we're gonna talk today. Uh the uh subtitle is uh How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly, Live Your Highest Purpose and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. Quite a mouthful. <laughs> mm. And um that radical responsibility um, model and, and uh, it really runs through all the
2: work that I do. Um, I spent Oh, oh uh, before we go into that, I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah. You're much more than what you just shared. Tell huh? us a little bit about, you're much more than what you just shared. You're one of my favorite Dharma teachers and you're an activist and you yourself are a force for good. See, I'm going to make you. I'm going to. He's blushing, folks. (laughs) Tell us a little bit more about your your role as a teacher, and perhaps even uh, some of the work you do in in the uh, law enforcement community. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, a lot of of what I do today is grounded in the fact that I spent 14 years in a federal prison on drug charges uh, for for drug trafficking, something I got involved in as a. As I, I got, as a young man, you know, full of shame and a, uh, you know, big hole in my gut and, and to classic angry young man graduating from high school in 1968. Um, I just went headlong into the counterculture and, and I uh, ended up living outside the country as an alienated expat and fell into small time drug trafficking to kind of live outside the system and justified that with all kinds of us versus them thinking and justifications and, uh continued i was always a spiritual seeker and continued that before i could untangle it all i ended up uh earning my way into a federally funded sabbatical for 14 years and and then really had to face the really harmful things i've been involved in and i had this kind of mixed life you know i'd always been involved in in uh you know in trying to do good and trying to evolve spiritually and i actually it worked out that when i went to prison i had a master's degree in contemplative psychotherapy from Roper university I studied with uh, an incredible Tibetan master for 10 years. I had a lot of training, but I hadn't managed to untangle my life yet at that point. And I really had to face, first of all, I had to face what I'd done to my son, who was nine years old, was now going to grow up without a dad. And uh, then as I spent time in 12-step groups dealing with my own substance abuse issues and listening to the story of one man after another, talking about how their lives and their family lives had unraveled around cocaine use. I had to really face the incredibly harmful activity I'd been involved in. And, and so, you know, that whole prison system early on was a real dark night of the soul experience, and then eventually became an incredibly transformative path. So, you know, what I do today, both as a Dharma teacher, as a, as, a, as a business consultant, executive coach, and seminar leader, and all the different spirits that I work in, really comes out of that path and that experience of 14 years in prison, of just embracing being uh, in a very hellish environment, and fortunately, having gone in with some skills and uh, some um, transmission and competence of my own innate goodness, uh, which was incredibly powerful there, because it's an environment where your basic um, humanity and dignity uh, and any sense of self worth is under assault twenty four seven from the environment, from the staff, from your fellow prisoners. I mean. 20 demeaning encounters would be an average day. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I teach from.
2: There's a phrase I often use, which is when, when I'm in dialogue with folks, I, I often feel like we encounter speed bumps mm-hmm. and speed bumps is my term for those emotional moments where something really large has just been said mm-hmm. or felt. Yeah. And, um, I could be wrong here, but, um, The feeling I have is that you've told that story so often in your life that the the height of the speed bump doesn't seem so high to you anymore. Mm -hmm. And I just want to pause and acknowledge and honor everything that you just said. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I'm hearing is that that the brokenhearted experience that you went through and the pain and suffering that you went through informs everything that you do as a man today am i getting that right absolutely yeah absolutely
0: yeah and you're right you know i mean i, I actually kind of avoid telling that story these days and and uh you know it's a long story and it's an elaborate story so it's how, how much to go into but but it was um you know just into the depth of fear and pain and vulnerability and heartbreak and shame and just everything you can imagine and having to somehow rediscover my, my dignity, uh, and courage and strength to go forward in that world. And, uh, it was really, you know, incredible, um, advanced training path for me. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have chosen it. I wouldn't uh, wish it on anyone, but, uh, Fortunately, I landed there with the background to take advantage of it and Mm. and really go into it uh, really deeply. Unfortunately, that same experience is mostly debilitating and damaging for most people. Uh, I was very fortunate that I would already had a lot of preparation.
2: Yes, and and we'll circle back to this, but I'm going to acknowledge right here, right now, in this moment, that there is something basically and fundamentally good about you that got tapped into. -hmm. And um, because there are many, many people who could have chosen a different way to respond to the experience that you had. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to explore in depth the linkage between your notion of radical responsibility and this experience, your Dharma teaching, your understanding of the Dharma, and equally important from where I sit, the work you're doing in the world to kind of break some of the cycles of pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I honor and recognize that, um, that's a hot spot to touch, but it feels like, um, that past, but it Mm -hmm. feels like if we were not to ground the conversation in that connected place, in that place of uh, strength, um, we might be untethered. Mm Mm-hmm in the conversation. Mm -hmm. So, um, I appreciate this as part of the, the opening background (laughs) conversation. Well, I welcome that actually. And I, and
0: I really appreciate your, your pausing to, uh, to honor and invite that. And, um, sometimes I feel that that part of my life is a little bit extraterrestrial Mm -hmm. in terms of the rest of the world, like how to give people context for it. And, uh, to appreciate it, I mean, everybody, you know, kind of. Oh, you spent fourteen years in prison. It's like, well, wow. and people appreciate that I've done good things with my life. But in terms of really being able to draw someone into what that journey was like, it's uh, it it feels daunting to to do that.
2: Well, you know, uh, you, you, we've we've really deepened, begun deepening our relationship and in our encounters, and I know that um, you're you're in the midst of reading my book, and um, you know that one of my basic premises is that it, if we are going to put ourselves in a position of helping others then we ourselves have to stand in that spot mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and i see you as doing that in a really beautiful um way and modeling that so i just want to acknowledge your warriorship and your courage mm. with regard to that thank
0: you well i i was uh, somehow stumbled into being at the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right time (laughs) Uh, uh, after spending 10 incredible years training with uh, someone like Trumper Mache and and,
2: um, so... Well, what would he have said said since you knew him so well? What would he have said about whether or not you were in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time? What would he have said?
0: Well, he actually... um, when people were asking him about me, you know, what, well, how I would do, or they were very, you know, expressing a lot of concern about, about me. Actually, you know, he, when I knew I was likely going to go to prison for a long time and uh, even before I was indicted actually. Um, but I had already made arrangements to turn myself in if I was indicted most likely anyway, but I put it out to him like, what should I do with this? Is this some kind of, you know, social cultural should i just escape and go to india or something and or do i need to stay and face this or what should i do and and i didn't really want to burden him with that but he was my teacher i didn't know where else to go with it and, and um uh, so um a friend of mine took that message to him uh, in canada where he was at the time and he spent about a week with it sitting with it and then he sent the message back you need to stay and face it and he said, uh, if you're on the run, it's going to be really hard for you to continue um, your path and, and your relationship with me and and, uh, and doing our work together. Uh, but if you're lock, even if you're locked up for decades, uh, you can still do the work. And so I've always been really grateful, never regretted uh, the decision. To, that was really the first time I ever followed anybody's advice. <laughs> you know, previously, all if you wanted me to go one way, just tell me to go the other way, right? So... Um, Uh, but I've never regretted, uh, following that advice as difficult as the journey was. And he told people one time, I've always found this a bit humorous, but, uh, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, well, uh, as well as in Hinduism, there's the term city, um, S-I-D-D-H-I, uh, which is various sort of abilities, powers, capacities, extraordinary capacities and what have you. And of course the, the ultimate city is enlightenment or liberation. And, uh, he told other people I was going to attain the city of federal prison, whatever, whatever that would mean.
2: Mm-hmm. Stay and face it. Mm-hmm. Stay and face it. Yeah. Now, I can project all sorts of connections here, but I'm going to let you fill in the blank. What's the relationship between stay and face it and radical responsibility? hmm And even more, give us the definition of radical responsibility as you see it.
0: Well, I talk about radical responsibility in different ways, but uh, kind of distilling it down, it's voluntarily within a context of extraordinary self-compassion. It's voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility, ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life, internally within ourselves and in the world around us. And uh, when, you know, when you think about that, it's a pretty radical notion. We, it's, we pretty quickly um, blame things we're experiencing even within ourselves on outside circumstances, but we certainly blame external circumstances on other people and things. And it seems very compelling to portion out the blame at times, but the idea here is really that um, the only real place we have any influences with ourselves and any real power, I mean, from a from a place of radical responsibility, we can be a positive influence in the world. But the place where it starts is really, for me, it's owning our own circumstances. And in prison, I realized very early on, when I got to federal prison, even I was in a county jail for seven months, going through trial and sentencing, which was a really hellish experience. Federal prison was almost a relief from that experience. Uh, but I got there, and I and I and I realized that you know the culture I was in were traumatized human beings who were had been just were just buried under a mountain of shame and guilt and demonization from their arrest forward and in order to survive just even though sort of psychically spiritually just survive they armor themselves up with denial and uh anger and uh bitterness and so forth and it was really clear to me i didn't want to come out of and and everybody's you know the world perceives all, all of us in prison as perpetrators of some kind. All prisoners perceive themselves as victims of one kind or another. And actually, most of them have been victimized in their childhoods, but they feel victimized by the system. They have a whole victim narrative and or by their fall partners, their lawyers and so forth and forth. So I was, it was really clear to me that I did not want to come out of prison angry and bitter and with a, a, that kind of victim identity. And I didn't want to live that way in prison. You know, I, I didn't want to live my life that way. It was really clear to me. Fortunately, I'd had enough training before I went in that i it was absolutely clear to me that that the only way out and through for me was to just embrace radical ownership for having got myself into that situation to begin with, like just forget about all the other contributors to my situation and focus on that, that just, you know, regardless of what went down with anybody else or the system or other people that helped me. You know, that didn't, that I, I did a lot of people's time, right? So mm. the way the, the thing worked out with the reason I got such a sentence, I did a lot of people's time because I was the one who wouldn't cooperate. But I just completely let go of all that. In fact, included all those in my Tonglin practice.
2: Your Tonglin practice refers to the taking and sending and right. transforming of other people's pain.
0: It's a core practice in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and has correlates in other Buddhist traditions. And it's a practice of the heart, a practice of compassion, where we actually uh, take on others' pain and suffering, and uh, and allow that to be transformed within the vast, empty, spaciousness of our own heart. Okay, and uh, and then send out instead loving and kindness and basic goodness, and and uh,
2: so I want to I want to jump. I work with all that. I want to jump in and parse this a little bit, because I think what you're saying is, again, profound and uh, interwoven. Because what I'm hearing is what part of what makes this radical is the assumption of responsibility. Um, You know, one of my core organizing questions that I will ask people is, how have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? Mm hmm. Now, I make a distinction between complicitness and responsibility because in my experience, when we start to go deep on on that experience, the blaming, shaming mindset um, flips from it's everybody else's fault to it's all my fault. Mm -hmm. And there's a loss of what I often consider a kind of discernment which is, w- w- wait a minute, there's actually, it, there's a complex situation that's occurred here. Um, and so I may take responsibility, but I don't necessarily take on the self-lacerating guilt that is complete.
0: Absolutely. And you're right at the core distinction in the book now. Mm. And this model is completely, sometimes I say trans blame or beyond blame. And, and we've all been enculturated that either someone else has to be blamed, or I'm going to have to take the blame. And we've all experienced plenty of blame and shame in our lives. We don't want it anymore. So we instinctually deflect and instinctually blame. You know, I remember Joseph Goldstein, uh, I had a video of his in prison from a retreat out in California. And he was telling a story about himself and that he was like at some retreat and he was in the cafeteria and where you go up and you have your tray and you know, you go, and somehow one of the chafing lids of a chafing dish got knocked off and hit the floor, banging all that noise. Right. And he just immediately went, it wasn't me. Right. You know, just right. like that. And he goes, right. What was that about?
2: Was right. That right. About? Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so, in that, that beautiful story, there's this two-step process, this little dance that he did, which was, it was me. Everybody thought it was me. It's not me. So he's defending yeah. against that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there is an alternative to blame, so radical responsibility is not about blaming others, obviously, but it's completely not about blaming ourselves. Mm. And it's certainly not about blaming victims either. So it, it requires a ground of tremendous self-compassion and all the work of uh, developing radical metta or loving kindness or maitri and really doing that work to connect it with our own innate goodness and innate worth and worthiness and, and doing that work. And at the same time, it allows us to focus our energy uh, where we really have the most personal power and the most influence, which is with ourselves. So it's not only uh, looking, you know I ask people and when i when I train people in the model, it's very experiential, and I've tried to duplicate that in the book as best I can, but it's all it's it's all done experientially through processes that I lead people through and, and where we get get into these distinctions that become actually clear within the body, heart, and mind. And so it's it's really seeing that um, on on the one hand, yes, we can look at where am I complicit, right? In some of the circumstances and that can be helpful. And the only reason to see where I'm complicit or where I even completely created something is, is not to blame myself, but now that gives me the insight on how I can do things differently to get different results. Mm -hmm. So when I see my part in the pathway to some circumstance, that gives me the opportunity to create different circumstances. So it's only for the purpose of that. At the same time, radical responsibility is about owning circumstances that I can't see. I had any complicity in mm-hmm. or anything to do with it at all. And again, that's not to blame myself. It's because it's just like, okay, this is in my lap now. You know, maybe it shouldn't be in mine or anybody else. Maybe it's a horribly unjust situation. Right. Mm-hmm. But maybe it seems like it fell out of this guy and landed on my head or in my lap. And everyone would agree I had nothing to do with it. Well, the fact of the matter is, it's now in my lap. And the really salient question is, what am I going to do with it? Mm -hmm. Am I going to let it take me down? Or am I going to find the most creative way I can respond and move forward in my life without blaming myself, but without getting lost in blaming others and cultivating a victim narrative? Just really looking at the situation, what's the most creative way I can respond to this situation? To move forward in my life, and that's that's where it gets to the really radical nub of this, because and it does require uh, a mindfulness practice or a contemplative practice, and it does it require doing the work of cultivating self compassion and loving kindness for oneself to give one the courage and the and the strength to do this. But it's that's what really makes this even more radical than some other models that really would want to parse out because of the fear of self blame, because we're all so enculturated to go into the self-blame and self-shaming. And, and in some ways, part of what this is looking at is, is just really the efficient use of our available uh, time, energy, courage, insight, you know, physical strength, mental strength, spiritual strength, and focusing it where we can do the most good, which is, what can I do? How can I respond to this? Or for a team, how can we respond to this?
2: This reminds me um, in so many ways. I, I, you know, so many of the populations that you're dealing with. In addition to uh, the work you do in in the criminal justice system, the work you do um, with those who are all sides of that suffering. You know, I know from our other conversation that that you work with, for example. not just prisoners in in the prison mindfulness work that you're doing but also with the, the folks who are responsible for keeping them keeping folks safe and and uh, maintaining the container of that uh, criminal justice system and so you're in the, all these different places and you know in a, in a in a less uh, prosaic way um, I think that this, what you're saying here is really important even for the, um, you know, our listeners who are in many cases first-time leaders, entrepreneurs, people who, um, who had that very same human proclivity to experience pain and to go to blame or shame or self-blame um, and, and, and to get stuck in this space of that And um, I remember uh, once reading, and this may be our relationship and our our love of some of the Zen teachings, a Zen aphorism which I bastardized into, uh, this being so, so what? Meaning, this being the conditions of your life, what will you do about it? Mm -hmm. Right? And there's something very powerful about being able to sit with strength in a warrior stance and being able to say, this is my life. And I, with discernment, understand the ways in which I have contributed and the, all of the conditions that have unfolded. And now what shall you do with this? Mm-hmm. Does that resonate with you?
0: Absolutely. You know, there's a, for me, there's a, a, a very integrated mix of vulnerability and courage. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, You know, when I go into prisons, I want the prisoners to get two things and they do get it because it's who I am. Um, I want them to get that I know the vast majority of them come from hellish backgrounds, that they were pretty much programmed to end up in prison. Many of them are lucky they're alive, that our criminal justice system is incredibly unjust and incredibly racially unjust, whether by default or design. But I, I want them to get that I get all that and that most of them have been terribly victimized in their lives. I want them to get all that that I, that I, that I that it breaks my heart to see people in prison. It breaks my heart to see and know about their lives and where they are and their suffering and where it's led them to. I want them to really get that. At the same time, I want them to get that if they want something different in their life, um, if they want to make a difference for others, if they want to make a difference even just for themselves, the only way out for them is to start taking ownership for each and every decision they're making right now. And, you know, they can sit around and and bemoan all the causes and conditions that led to them ending up in that prison cell. It's not going to do them a damn bit of good. You know, it's, it's really having the courage to open up to the pain of being in prison to begin with, which most prisoners really ward off, mm-hmm. right? They ward off, they take this cavalier attitude and a lot of black humor and, you know, to really, embrace the pain of being, you know, in a prison cell. And what that means, uh, the social death that's involved with that and, uh, the, you know, the family uh, relationships and all the rest of it to really embrace that pain and then say, I'm going to sit in this pain and start owning the decisions I'm making. And 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 from that place of brokenhearted warriorship, which is a term that you use, start uh, moving forward in my life. And that's, that's the only pathway forward for them. And, you know, I give the same message to CEOs. You know, in leadership, we carry, we carry a higher burden. We carry a higher burden. And the people we're leading and the, the people who, uh, you know, really depend on us to show up and be real and be authentic and be genuine don't have time for us to be parsing out responsibility. And, uh, you know, and, you know, well, you know, it's, a, yeah, I, I know as a leader, I'm, I got to take this on, but, you know, so-and-so in this department and that, my employees and this and the economy and the government and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, uh, it's just a complete, absolute waste of time. And it doesn't mean that we may not find ourselves doing that and then breathe with that and surround that with loving and kindness and compassion and, and, find, and experience the times when our fear triggers old wounds and triggers our childhood experiences of shaming that we can surround that with awareness and love and compassion. And then we got to, uh, you know, we got to stand up straight and, and feel that, be willing to, within that space of vulnerability, start moving forward and take complete ownership for the steps we're taking.
2: What Ownership hear say. for our responsibility. We have to stay and face it. Yeah,
0: absolutely. My teacher used the term holding your seat, mm. uh, which comes from the, the equestrian tradition called dressage where instead of posting at a at a trot, canter or gallop, you keep your butt in the saddle, the the mm-hmm. body, your body never loses contact with the horse and you have to, your whole pelvis moves in a different way. And when you're in the ring training with a trainer in dressage, the trainer may be yelling at you, hold your seat, hold your seat. And he was trained in that tradition. His wife was a dressage master and still is. and And so he used that expression, which is a great parallel to meditation because you're putting your butt on the cushion, right? Mm-hmm. So, but you know, for him, training and meditation was training to hold our seat in the midst of our life.
2: So holding our seat and, and, and the way I often sh- uh, say that is taking the seat, which um, to begin
0: with, that's the first step. To begin yeah, with, that's the seat. first
2: seat, right. And it, it is a function of staying and facing it. And it's a function. It's, it's the advice that you are. It's the counsel. Advice is too distant a word. It's the counsel. It's the way in which you are being with uh, the prisoners who are in a system. And perhaps the prisoners of shame and blame were outside of a constrained system. And I don't mean to create a false equivalency between the experiences of those who are in a dehumanizing cell, in a racist, um, uh, dehumanizing experience known as a cell block, and and those of us who are feeling trapped by our work lives and by our lives. But there is a uh, relationship. Between the, the suffering and that dukkha suffering is suffering,
0: and it's standing in that, standing in the hot fire of that. Mm. Uh, what in the Indian traditions of, of India, both uh, Tibetan and Hinduism, they use the term charnel ground, right? Uh, Pema Chodron talks about places that scare you. It's sitting in the hot fire of that that burns away what is unnecessary, and what's left is a natural radiation of the human heart and our innate goodness. And that's really what we have to offer to others, as leaders, uh, as people going into support prisoners, people running companies, uh, our spouses, our children. What we have to offer is, you know, the extent that we're that we've done and we're doing our work. Mm. So that is not in the way of our open heart and our authenticity, our genuineness. And there's a net. There's a real radiation. You know, I spent in in prison. I helped start the first hospice program inside a prison anywhere i happen to do my time in a maximum security federal prison hospital in the height of the aids epidemic so we started a hospice program and then i started an organization there's now about 80 hospices in state and federal prisons now and Uh, can can we just pause on that
2: because again you just said something really powerful my dear dharma brother you are uh your heart is really powerful. You created the first hospice program in the midst of the AIDS crisis, in the midst of a population that our society is basically thrown away. Where you said, those who are dying still deserve dignity.
0: That is incredible.
2: And, and I interrupted you, and I apologize yeah. for that. No, no problem. I needed to honor yeah. what, what, what you had just said. Mm-hmm.
0: And for me, what that work was all about was what I had to bring to the bedside of one of my fellow prisoners was who I was being. And to the extent that I was sitting in that fire of my own work, And uh, there is a a palpable radiation that, uh, a space in which uh, is very, can be very healing for others, but at the very least it's very stabilizing, which they can find their own seat and begin to hold their own seat and do their own work. So I think it's that natural space holding and radiation. I mean, there's lots of skillful things we can do. And in the hospice work, we learn to be skillful and conversationally and skillful in how to care for somebody physically. But the, the and and the same thing with leadership, there's all kinds of leadership skills and communication skills, coaching skills, things that we can learn. But for me, the, the ground is who we're being. And that comes out of the work that we do and that we're continually willing to uh, peel back another layer and another layer of that unacknowledged shame and drop into our vulnerability, you know, and um, One place I learned this in prison was in the 12-step work. I immediately got involved in that kind of recovery work to deal with my own substance abuse issues. And, you know, it was a combination of an Alcoholics Anonymous and a Narcotics Anonymous group. And in the big book of AA, which, because of the era in which it was founded, the language is fairly theistic and Christian. I have nothing against those traditions, but it wasn't my tradition. So I was struggling with that language a bit as a Buddhist, and for a while, uh, even the notion of higher power, um, and then one day I, I had this, uh, pretty profound insight that I realized that my higher power was that hole in my gut mm-hmm. that I've been trying to fill up with anything possible my whole life coming out of the shame I experienced. You know, I grew up in a good middle-class family in the Midwest that became, uh, somewhat upper middle-class, uh, but self-made family on both sides of my family, good people, but alcoholism and, uh, the secret life of my mother's, uh, periodic alcoholism and rage and and uh the kind of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, mother that I grew up with, went from being this beatific, creative, artistic uh woman, uh uh once or twice a week or two or three times a month, turned into this scary alcoholic rageholic who would come take her anger out on me or whoever was around. And so growing up with the shame of that, right? And and so i lived with a black hole in my gut. and been trying to fill that up with sex and drugs and experiences and everything you could think of. And I feel I finally realized that hole in my gut was my higher power. That's where I needed to go. That's where I would find my higher power. And that really is what made that 12 step work incredibly transformative for me and synced in with all the meditation practices and inner yogic practices I was doing from the Tibetan tradition um, that I was able really to just take my seat in that, Very dark, scary world of shame and pain and grief and vulnerability, and learn to be a yogi there. Learn to live there. That that's that that's um, that. There's something there that you can trust, and it opens the doorway to a deeper level of being, where things become unshakable.
2: I'm reminded of uh, one of my favorite Joseph Campbell quotes, which is, "The treasure you seek is in the back of the cave."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and when I'm hearing you say, you know, you, you say you're higher power, I often say your are superpower, mm-hmm. right? And, and what I'm hearing is that uh, by the good grace of the federal prison system, you had nothing, no choice but to actually go back to the back of the cave and really face these things. And, and you did what your teacher told you to do. You stayed and faced it. And, and, you know, I want to thank you for the, for, 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 for this, because I think that what you're giving us is not only an intellectual understanding of what you mean by radical responsibility, but an emotional, existential, and spiritual understanding Mm -hmm. grounded in the visceralness of your true experience. And I'm going to jump us to something you shared with me before we started recording, which was that you were recently on the border.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: between the united states and mexico and working not just with well why don't you tell that story you were working with mm-hmm.
0: whom yeah as i mentioned before for um been bringing this work to prisoners for 30 years but great gratefully for the last 10 years i've had the opportunity to bring it to criminal justice and public safety professionals correctional officers to begin with and it's expanded from there And I was contacted a couple of months ago by the U.S. Border Patrol, um, the El Centro sector in uh, uh, California on the border that covers part of Arizona, part of California. And um, they have a thousand agents there. And, uh, you know, they're doing a really tough job and they're being asked to do things that many of us feel are very inhumane under current policies, as we all know. It's been in the news a lot. And um, they, like most... uh, law enforcement agencies, they have, uh, agents who are, have regular positions, uh, but they're also part of a peer support team that support other officers when there's been a, a critical incident or a traumatic incident, or when they're having trouble in their personal, I mean, they try to, there's a really kind of macho culture and it's very hard to get people even to reach out for help, but that's their job is to support their fellow officers. So they wanted us to come down and, and give them some training around resilience and wellness. And, uh, so we went down there, and out in the middle of the desert, it was 118 degrees a day. We were there. I've never been in that kind of heat, and I didn't know what to run into. Although I, I work a lot with police and law enforcement these days, so I kind of know the culture a bit and very familiar with with it. And so, you know, it was. They were kind of typical law enforcement, and and uh, got in there and. They were all, most of all of them were uh, armed and some were in uniform, some weren't in uniform. And so it was been an experience over the last eight years to stand up in front of a room some with anywhere from 20 to 100 uh, officers looking back at me and they're, they're all armed. <laughs> and I uh, sometimes, I don't do it all the time anymore, but very often started off explaining, you know, where I come from, the fact that I'm, you know, a graduate of one of their programs. and, uh, <laughs> and you, You're just digging yourself in a hole, you know. Uh, but anyway, there I was with these officers and before we started we had a conversation with the he wasn't in the training But he was the agent who organized it and and brought us in And you know, we're talking about some of the stuff that's in the news and he talked about And you know something he experienced where he had to separate a mother from her children Mm. And how absolutely heartbreaking and traumatizing it was for him and and that he's never really gotten over it And actually in that instance, it was a mother who was actually engaged in criminal activity. there was drug smuggling involved and and she was had the children with her as kind of a cover. So it wasn't just the immigration or someone seeking asylum, but it still broke his heart. It was still incredibly traumatic for him. And uh, you know, we had side conversations with other uh, agents during the breaks and so forth. and and some of them were willing to talk about, you know, what they're going to and how they how they feel they're being perceived by the media and and the work they're having to do and and the, what it's costing them. And there were some others who were more armored up with bravado and and making light of it or kind of some black humor and so forth. Mm. But overall, as we got into the training, um, you know, people were just soaking it up like a sponge because they're in so much pain. And, you know, even though they're not inclined to admit it or be open and vulnerable about it, you know, because of the way I lead the training and who I'm being in a training room, they just start start seeing, "Oh, oh, my God, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, it's very practical training. I'm, I'm, everything is oriented, everything about the training. I mean, it's a combination of mindfulness, emotional intelligence work, uh, resilience work. It has a neurobiological foundation, a science foundation, but everything is oriented towards uh, giving them tools to get in more in the driver's seat of their own life uh, with self-compassion and and to you know be able to actually be alive in their own body in their own heart to not be shut down and have the skills to really you know not be victimized by the situation they're in but really start you know and uh and they just soak it up and and this training for some reason i uh, everyone's different but i got through the rhythm both days and especially the second day where I was able to go into the radical responsibility piece. I can't go through the whole process and that short mm-hmm. of a training, but I walk them through the way I do the process. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, you know, usually we pair people up and then they're telling, I have them go deep into a victim story and surface all the things that come up in terms of the themes of injustice and betrayal and abuse of power and all the feelings of rage and anger and hurt and shame. And we get all that up there. And then I shift and have them, tell the ownership version of the story, what I call the ownership version of the story. And like, what can you own in this? And what can you see where, and people retell the story from a different perspective and we get a whole different set of themes and feelings. And it's not that the the other one's a rose garden, but it's very different. And I have that one above this line and that one below this line. We start looking at it and we get to this distinction around that you can actually live your, it's a choice where you want to live vis-a-vis the circumstances of our life. And it may be a hard-won choice, and it may be a heroic choice, but there is choice. And this is not about you know, imposing that choice on others, telling others, this is about us, right? But mm. seeing that we have that choice, and that through exercising that choice is our way into authentic relationship, and really what everything that we value in life. And they were just, uh, I don't think I'd ever seen a group of law enforcement officers who their eyes were all wide open, mm. and they were just soaking it in. It was like the last hour of the training. And they were just their jaws dropping, soaking it in, because they just saw that, that they didn't have to stay stuck in the incredible pain they're in. And there was another alternative to just shutting down and armoring up and being angry and being negative, that, that, they could, that there was a way forward to be a human being, even in the midst of this really challenging work that they do. And right. um, right. so that was powerful to be with
2: them and to see that, the lights, you know, going on in their eyes. It's powerful to just hear the story. And, you know, what it, what it leads me to wish, and I imagine this is so, that one or more of those officers then is able to approach their work, which is important work, with what the wish we, so many of us have for them, Mm -hmm. which is that they do so with compassion absolutely yeah that they then respond to that person who in their desperation with or without illegal activity their desperation they're, because even those who are smuggling drugs are trying to change the circumstances of their life mm-hmm. perhaps absolutely. with poor choices eh mm-hmm. right but to approach because they have power what i see you having done is encourage a level of self empathy self-awareness so that they can then approach their very important discharge of power and responsibility with compassion. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And we're all hardwired for compassion and we're hardwired for altruism. And when when our own fear and our own shame gets in the way, we're not able to access that. And so if, if we can give people the skills to take better care of themselves, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and and have more sense of self-agency uh, and confidence in how they can navigate, you know, their own body, heart, and mind and get in touch with something deeper. Then they can access their very natural capacities for compassion and altruism. You know, I had a running experiment in prison. I can't remember if I tell this story in the book, but when I was in prison, you know, I was born in Missouri, the show me state. I'm the natural skeptic and had a great rational skeptic education growing up um and through high school and college and uh uh, the classic doubting thomas right so even though i've been immersed in the teachings around basic goodness for you know for 45 years now and inclined that way even before then uh you know it was still in my mind you know maybe not everybody you know Mm. and so there were a lot of uh people among my fellow prisoners and the guards in this prison where i was uh that made you wonder <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and so i had this kind of running experiment you know of uh uh people who may maybe they questioned whether they had any redeeming value or any capacity for goodness at all and uh every time i thought i had my man you know mm-hmm. uh it was usually the male guards and sometimes a prisoner at that point where i almost was convinced that they had no redeeming value or no capacity they would always reveal their heart to me it happened every time mm-hmm. and i finally gave up the project but I some of the most some some of those bitter angry guards that you never got anything but hate and venom from and it could be incredibly demeaning you know suddenly i saw their heart and saw their vulnerability there was one guard i'll never forget who was just you know it, you just never got anything but absolute nastiness and you know from him and obviously a really angry and really hurt person but when you're on the other side of that power dynamic it's hard to have compassion when somebody's coming at you with that level of negativity and you know just really demeaning energy and uh, so you know i was pretty used to you know keeping my distance uh and and both both physically and emotionally mm-hmm. around his energy. And one day um, I'm coming by him and they, they move around a lot in the prison. They, they move around in their duty assignments a lot. And so he had been in the visiting room one time when I was there on a visit with my son. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm walking by the guard station. and he looks up at me and he says, how's your son? Oh, now you're going to make me
2: cry. Yeah. Yeah. power of your son to actually connect the two of you Mm -hmm. well fleet thank you for that story and thank you for for the conversation this morning and thank you for your book um it's an effort and you know for me the book is a uh concise uh workbook if you will for how to be more human um, it's not a b- merely about moving beyond blame and shame. It's really about um, kind of a, a stepping through um, m- the movement towards adulthood. and we joked before, you joked before that the subtitle of my book, "Leadership in the Art of Growing Up," could have been um, yours. I, I would suggest that it's more leadership and the art of being human um, uh, is, is the subtitle here. And you, you do a wonderful job of just breaking things down and making it accessible and understandable. And I can feel the effort. I can feel 30, 40 years of training coming through the book. And so thank you for that.
0: Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much, Jerry.
2: It was a delight to have you on the show. Yeah. Been a delight to be with you.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, go to Reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at Reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? John Greenfield and I lead people operations and business development here at Psychic. The Circle's experience as a whole has been great. I feel like I've met a number of people that I wouldn't have otherwise and have incredible insight to share. One of the neat things is that bringing all these people together in similar roles and it's been neat to see how really how much of a connection you can feel with people over a short period of time and I think that's grounded in the fact that The Circles were designed in a way that people who have similar experiences and are facing similar challenges are brought together. So it's sort of like we we already had a common language that we were speaking in. The the reason that I joined Circles was really a gut feeling. I see something, I sort of identify with the people in the program. Something resonates with me, and I think I should go with this. Consider joining a reboot Circle. Our Circles participants have called their Circle their secret weapon. You'll gain more self-awareness and you'll know you're not alone in the challenges you face day to day. You'll find the same level of self-inquiry in a coach-facilitated cohort with six other leaders just like you. Apply at reboot.io slash circles.